In this recording, I talked to Molly Thornton, Senior Investment Manager at Parmenian. She's my go-to guru for all things ESG. We talked about COP26 and whether it was a success or failure and what happens next. We talked about ESG investing generally and how it's developing. And we looked at the various policy initiatives happening in this space and where financial advisors should be focusing their attention. I hope you enjoy listening to it. And we are recording. Hi, Molly. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. So we we met last on a, a sort of virtual roundtable event a few weeks ago, which I, I really enjoyed participating in. I was really struck by your contribution to that event. I know it was, it was, it was sponsored by your employers, Parmenian, but you were, you were really good on that. So I was really keen to catch up with you for this. So... You can do a much better job than I can. So can I ask you to start by just you know, give, give us a quick introduction to Molly Thornton and what you do for Parmenia and also just how you've arrived here. What's, what's been your path that's brought you to this point? Sure. No, and just to say thanks so much, Tom, for inviting me on this. And um, yeah, really nice to have a chance to speak to you again and hopefully we'll do something in person at some point. But yeah, <laughs> in terms of me, so yeah, I'm a senior investment manager at Parmenian. sort of privilege at the moment that I'm heading up our ethical solution, which I can talk about in a bit more detail. But um, we're on a team, there's 11 of us in the investment team. So we have a real group approach to managing a range of risk-graded portfolios for clients. So the main focus there is, is risk first and kind of strategic asset allocation. But we also do a whole depth of fund research as well. So that's what we spend most of our time on, as well as getting to do you know client meetings and events and, and stuff as well, which is really fun. In terms of how I got there, um, so I left uni, I went to Bristol Uni actually and did math degree and then I ended up working in um, financial services as an issue with pension schemes so I sort of trained as an actuary a long time ago now and then more recently I've sort of had more of a focus on sustainable investing so um, you know doing the CFA ESG certificate earlier in the year and stuff like that and become more specialised in that area. But you managed to escape from pension. (laughs) Well sort of obviously um, we, uh, we do offer pensions but yeah it's less kind of technical on the sort of defined benefit pension side nowadays and more on the investing side so we're, we're both we're both here i think it's kind of funny this is the second time we've met recently virtually in spite of the fact yeah. that we, both, we live within a few miles of each other here in bristol <laughs> so so what, what brought you to bristol you you said you came to university here where, where are you from originally um, so i spent part of my childhood down in devon in torbay which was lovely and then and when i was 11 we moved to stratford on avon so i had family in you know both lovely places and i guess bristol was somewhere in the middle yeah i've kind of stayed ever since so yeah it's, it's a good never wanting to leave it's a pretty cool city isn't it yeah we've we've enjoyed bringing up our kids here so i was keen to ask you about cop 26 and the tears of alok sharma you know i've seen so many conflicting reports about the conference and i'd be really interested in your take like was it a success or not because it felt like I was getting really conflicting messages over that. What was your take on it? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Tom. And I think it probably wasn't the best possible outcome, but it definitely wasn't the worst. So I think I think it's a fair summary that it was a bit of a mixed bag, really. I'm quite a positive person. I, I saw there were really good progress made on a few areas. I guess, you know, the main focus has been net zero, hasn't it, in carbon emissions and what we all need to do to reduce those. And we've seen actually, you know, countries coming forward with more ambitious, nationally determined contributions, they're called. So, 
more ambitious pledges, including actually one from India, which was a bit of a surprise. They came through with a net zero pledge by 2070, and that obviously followed China last year with a net 2060 pledge. So at this point, 90% of global GDP is covered by net zero pledges, which is, you know, fantastic. I think now it's almost more about delivery. So we've got a lot of pledges taking us closer and closer to one and a half degrees. But the bigger gap is more on, you know, what policies and how we're actually going to transition. I think it was seen as a bit of a landmark that 190 countries agreed to phasing down coal. Phasing down? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that's been um, one of the headlines. And I mean, obviously, phasing out would have been a stronger commitment. But I think we have to recognise that countries like India and China are... You know, they haven't fully industrialised and they still haven't hit their peak emissions yet. You know, whereas in the West, we had that last century. So I think we have to recognise they're still very reliant on fossil fuels and to have some a sort of more orderly transition, understand why they, they wanted to water that wording down. But, you know, the fact that coal is mentioned in the legal agreement has been a bit of a landmark that's the first time. And, you know, that's a good starting point, I guess, to build on for, for COP27 and, and, and next year. And so I don't think, you know, all is lost there. I was really struck listening to Ed Miliband not mm-hmm. long ago. A couple of things he said that just stayed with me. One was, and I seem to remember he referenced his brother as having been the architect of this, that the UK government deserves some credit for having a sort of hardwired in staging posts. So, you know, you can't just put this vague promise way out 20, 30 years into the future, you know, net zero by 2050 or whatever. But no, you've got to check in every five years how you're doing, what's been your progress. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting. But it sounds like the world needs a bit more of that yet, a bit more of those kind of hard interim milestone checks. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, people have sort of disappointed that India's pledge was 2070, but frankly, 2070 versus 2060 or 2050, I think, you know, that's sort of semantics in the context of what needs to happen by 2030. And if we look at the science, yeah, I think the Climate Action Track has got us on the the best case now based on the pledges so far that we're going to be at 1.8 degrees of warming. But so much more needs to be done to bend the curve. And I mean, yeah, there was some positive steps, wasn't there? Like the methane pledge and the deforestation pledges by, you know, over 100 leaders there. So, you know, we can take sort of some confidence and comfort that there will be some actions. But it, yeah, as you say, it's not nearly enough. And I guess as well, the big absence from the conference was China, wasn't it? So again, they had sort of a last minute statement with the US. They'd work together on climate change. But I think we need a bit more detail there, given the impact they'll have. And, you know, without them, we really can't succeed. So that, that's going to be crucial. And it was all just, just kind of slow steps in the right direction. As you say, it was good that India at least made a pledge. You know, there's, there's a commitment there. That's progress. You know, we'll come back round and we'll do it again and move further next time. And you just keep chipping away at it. I think, yeah, I think we have to see it in those terms. And I know historically, you know, these previous COPs, countries would come back with their new pledges every five years or longer. But, you know, now it's going to be ratcheting up much more quicker. And I think the urgency is being recognised now. So I suppose everyone's got the focus in the right place now. Um, And I think the other thing which was a really interesting one this time around was just the presence of, you know, business CEOs and the finance industry at the COP. I wasn't there myself, but I heard that, you know, that was quite a change from previous events with, you know, how much focus on business and finance there's been at this COP and with the money to back it up. So I suppose, um, you know, that's going to be really important as well. Well, I was going to ask you about that and the, you know, the pledge to commit 100 billion a year to developing countries. 
and is the developed world doing enough on that front and these these kind of financing pledges are we in the right place on that kind of thing i think that is actually the biggest negative or concern for me is you know emerging markets don't really seem to be getting as much support as they need yeah you mentioned the 100 billion dollars there figure that pledge was actually made 10 years ago And it hasn't been met yet, so it was supposed to be met in 2020, but it looks like it's going to now be 2023, which is a bit disappointing. And, you know, we know that looking back since you know the Industrial Revolution in the West, the biggest emitters have been the US and the EU. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're mostly responsible for a lot of what's happening now. Actually, many emerging markets haven't had such high emissions. And they're the ones facing a lot of the damages because they're equatorial or, you know, countries like the Maldives that are really low sea level. And I think that that was lacking from the conference, just enough commitment there on, you know, the loss and damages and compensating those countries. And, and the arguments about climate justice, and you, you can see their point of view on that kind of stuff. You've industrialised, you're the ones causing the problem, you can't now tell us we can't do it. Oh, and by the way... We're the ones who are going underwater first. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and I think it was quite stark when, you know, unfortunately, because of the conference being in Glasgow and with COVID, some of the emerging markets, it was really hard for, you know, Indigenous people to get access to the event if they'd not been vaccinated or couldn't, you know, have the resources to fly there. And yet we had all the Western leaders flying in in their private jets. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I think there was a big contingent, you know, the fuel lobby, you know, the energy sector there. So, yeah, it felt like there, you know, there wasn't the representation we wanted at, at the conference. Yeah, and there's always that problem of, you know, John Kerry flying in on his private jet or whoever and then mm. lecturing everybody about how they need to live more responsibly. And it's mm. like, you know, there's, a, there's a bit of hypocrisy there. The other thing, I wanted to come back to Ed Miliband because the other thing that struck me about what he said in the context of Paris was that one of the reasons Paris was a success was that the developed world and the highly undeveloped world executed a pincer movement on the middle. So because the developed nations had been working closely back in 2015 in the prelude to Paris with Mm. the very poorest nations and had been supporting them and working with them, they were able to pick off some of the other nations that might otherwise have been reluctant to sign up to agreements. Mm. You know, in that context, he made the argument that things like sharing vaccines for coronavirus around the world and being a good global citizen and the projection of soft power and, you know, some of the things you just talked about there, you know, in, in recognising the climate justice arguments. These things matter. Taking mm. to, to sort of the kind of the moral commitment that you make to others does kind of come back round. And, you know, if you support some of the very undeveloped nations, they will work with you. And it then makes it harder for other nations to stay outside the fold. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And yeah, we, we spoke earlier about, you know, China and Russia lacking. And I think, you know, the geopolitical landscape probably has changed quite a lot since 2015. But I guess it's pleasing that now, yeah, most countries have commi- made some sort of pledge. Which, But now it's obviously about the delivery, isn't it? I think Paris was all about the commitments and acknowledging climate change and, you know, committing to do some and now it's, it's going to be more and more about the action. So just talk a word about Parmenian what, and, mm. and come, come, come back to your work there. So, I mean, first of all, are we talking ethical or ESG? That's a really good question, Tom. So um, I guess we were one of the earliest into this space as an ethical DFM. So our solution is called PIM Strategic Active Ethical. 
However, I think terminology is moving on. So ethical used to be sort of the umbrella phrase you'd hear about in retail investing. You know, a lot of people now talk about ESG as, as I guess, the most general, or we have sustainability. So, um, yeah, we try not to get too hung up about that. But you're right, it kind of encompasses the whole range, really. And you say you were one of the first. How long ago was that? So the solution, the active solution was set up in March 2012. So we're coming up to our 10-year anniversary, which is fantastic. And, um, yeah, nearly 700 million assets under management as well. So it's been really successful for us. And um, yeah, really strong track record of risk-adjusted returns for our clients as well, which is great. And who's buying your solution? What do your clients look like? All our client, our direct clients are sort of financial advisors, but of course they're advising their end clients. So we've got over a thousand financial advisors who have their clients with us in this solution now. And it's really trying to offer sort of a broad range of access to the ESG ethical and sustainable space. So, you know, we don't do bespoke portfolios and we're not, you know, if someone's got really specific requirements, probably not for them. But, you know, for the majority of others, we're giving that broad access to the investments in this space. And we do it with 10 risk grades as well, which is a bit of a differentiator for us. So all four of our ethical profiles have 10 risk grades. So there's a huge amount of choice there for clients. And you're about to move into passive? Yeah, that's right. So this has been on the radar for quite a while, actually. And we know our clients have been demanding this for some years now. So, yeah, we've been doing a load of research um, in connection with our ethical oversight committee which is a sort of independent panel of experts we speak to on this and we're getting really close actually so next year we're due to launch a new passive solution which will be managed in you know the same 10 risk grades the same risk focused way with the same level of due diligence that we bring from our or our nearly 10 years in the active space but i guess for those that are a bit more cost conscious could be something they'd be interested in so what sort of pricing are we talking about here are you able to talk about that at all yet in terms of where the passive stuff will come in not quite but um you know we're aware that there's already a few other solutions on the market and it you know it is going to be very competitively priced with those so um, we're confident that it will meet that kind of you know cost sensitive clients level of cost they're looking for so it seems like there's a lot of money flowing into esg investment solutions in some Mm. cases you know there's been some pretty impressive returns We've seen some smart startups, some of the valuations they're enjoying, pretty high multiples of revenues at a pretty early stage. Does this look like a bubble at all? I think it depends how you access it. If you're someone that wants to you know, put all your money into a company doing carbon capture or hydrogen tech, then obviously you know, that, that's going to come with a, a risk and some of those, some of the clean energy companies are quite expensive. But you know, we, we see that there are good opportunities and um, you know, in our active solution, all our managers are, their main objective is still to deliver a financial return as well as the sustainability aspects. So you know, they've got valuation discipline. They're still doing all the detailed financial due diligence of companies you'd expect and they're ensuring they've got diversification so depending on which profile it is you know we've got some sort of more mainstream that are investing you know across you know financials pharmaceuticals as well as you know some of the more niche areas like renewable energy or or social housing or whatever it is just to try and give that spread and and make sure the portfolio is not too exposed in any one area and do you get the sense with all this money now flowing into esg funds in their various forms and you were seeing a lot of new fund launches and you know, it is clearly the growth sector. I mean, as, mm. a, as, a, as an umbrella, I appreciate the yeah. different investment sectors within that. But are the capital flows going into the right places? I mean, you mentioned carbon capture there. You know, it feels like maybe some bits are getting left out in all of this. Yeah, good question. I think there's some obvious areas. So, yeah, I think some of the renewable energies or even electric vehicles, you know, companies like Tesla have seen a lot of demand. 
I think the, the gap is maybe a bit of in um, emerging markets, actually, as we mentioned earlier, you know, emerging markets really need help to decarbonize. And yeah, maybe there's less companies that have are doing all the detailed reporting some clients might want to see on carbon footprints, or maybe they're not totally there in being 100% sustainable yet. But we know that we've got to get everyone on this transition. So actually investing more in companies and helping them on their way can have a bigger impact for clients that are willing to invest in that way. Obviously, you need to choose fund managers that have the ability to you know, do that engagement work and bring them on with them. But yeah, it's not all about investing in companies that are already sort of AAA rated from ESG. It's about bringing on the, you know, maybe some of the middle ones and helping them get up there as well. And with the laggards, you know, engage or divest. What's, what's your take on that one? Do we just pull the shutters down or do we, do we stay on the board and try and influence change? Yeah, I think it, it does depend, doesn't it? I think many investors are now realising that, yeah, just simply divesting isn't really going to help because someone else will just buy the shares who might not care. And also, you know, even if you divest from BP or Shell, you're still we're still on the same planet, you know, their emissions will affect you. So I suppose that's one argument for engaging if you can. But then saying that some of our fund managers have tried to engage with the big fossil fuel companies and you know if the company doesn't want to listen I guess there's not so much you can do if they're still going to be drilling in the Arctic and damaging the environment or if they're going to be you know they might have a net zero target but actually it lets them do business as usual till 2049 and then invest in a load of carbon capture which doesn't exist yet I think you know we've got to be realistic about this and you know divestment I suppose can be still a positive you know signal if it's done in the right way after engagement fails, I suppose. I was struck by a a poll that Parmenian ran recently with financial advisors looking at what financial advisors thought the main problem or the main barrier to ESG investing was. And there were options like concerns about compliance, lack of client interest, concerns about client suitability, concerns about greenwashing and the rest of it. By far and away, the winning option with over two thirds of the vote was a lack of consistent definitions and data mm. to compare solutions. So, I mean, that was that was one poll, but actually, it was one your employers ran on. Mm-hmm. on so, but that says to me that from a financial advisor's point of view, they're still not getting the right outputs. They don't feel like they've got the right data in front of them to make informed decisions on behalf of their clients. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think this, you know, this is coming to the fore, isn't it? And I think in in some ways, I'm really pleased that advisors now aren't questioning that these solutions, you know, will underperform or they're too risky or they're too expensive. I think advisors want to embrace these solutions. But like you said, I think some of the data is lacking to help them get there and have that level of confidence. Sorry to interrupt you. Is it lacking or are they just not looking in the right places? Well, I think in our team, so when we're doing assessment on a fund, for example, doing due diligence, as I mentioned earlier, we've got an expert panel of four experts so you know we can draw on their expertise to have a you know an hour hour and a half meeting with a fund manager request load of information then we'll separately and palm into our own due diligence so you know that's how we get comfortable with funds but i appreciate not everyone has access to that resource or experience and um, i think 
it's it's a bit of both really i think more data and more consistency will help and then um, might come on to it but the, you know there's new regulations in the works that should help with that but i think unfortunately there's always going to be an element of subjectivity here so i don't think it's ever going to be fully black and white but you know advisors will become more comfortable with that and you know i guess be able to hopefully make their own assessments when they've got more experience of getting more consistent data which they can rely on so i think it's probably going to be a bit of both yeah and i, I do want to come on to the regulatory change so just before we go there i mean this kind of links back to the earlier point you were just making around the kind of divest or engage thing because there's a real communication challenge as well there isn't there you know your fund managers might say well we're staying on the board because we think it's a good stock and because we think we can engage with the management but those financial advisors might look at your portfolio and say like what what the hell are you doing investing in that stock? You know, that's that doesn't look green to me. And so you've got a real mm. communication challenge there at times, maybe. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, you know, I think it's just us trying to make sure the literature we have on our solution is is really clear so that, you know, our clients understand what the full profiles are trying to do. And, yeah, we've got two which have more explicit negative screens. So they'd be more avoiding fossil fuels, whereas the others are more positively driven. So they could, in theory, have exposure to a leader in that space. Um, if our fund managers thought it was appropriate but it's also up to us to um, make sure we're you know doing the due diligence on that fund as well so if, if a fund manager is engaging a company that we don't think is particularly green we want to understand you know the rationale for that and it's more about outcomes driven engagement now as well so we want them to have a clear plan on the engagement and kind of show us what the milestones are without obviously taking too much credit for those because often they're engaging with other you know, collaborating with other investors and it might be over a number of years, but there needs to be some direction of travel there, I think. And the other thing we can look at is just the resource, you know, how many people are on their engagement team? Is it realistic they're going to be able to properly Know, get to know this company and do the long-term work that's quite time-consuming to try and affect change. I and mean, it does require resources, doesn't it? It does require yeah. commitment and none of it happens by accident, does it? No, exactly right. So from a financial advisor's point of view, I'm just really struck, having, particularly having stepped away from the industry for, for a year or so, um, mm. and as we were talking earlier on, you know, went off to, to play with electric bikes for a while. It's <laughs> a, a really interesting interlude and then and then coming back in again and i'm just struck by how much activity there is going on from the dwp to the fca the treasury you know the uk is planning to publish a transition pathway mm-hmm. for the financial sector i think next year you've got yeah. the financial reporting council you've got now the sustainability disclosure requirement and the fca is just all over this right now and yeah. then you know, as I dig into this, I find the Investment Consultant Sustainability Working Group has published <laughs> a list of 12 environmental, social and governance reporting metrics. And now we've got the International Sustainability Standards Board as well. So, you know, from a financial advisor's point of view, I guess there's two questions here. So forgive me for hitting you with two questions at once. But one is, who are the key drivers in all of this? And also, you know, what should advisors be focusing their attention on you know can you can you just talk a bit about the different initiatives from the different governing bodies of one kind and another and and actually Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it where should advisors focus their attention yeah well i think you've just given a really good overview tom of how much is going on here and you've, you've mentioned the main ones i think obviously the eu was really first on this with their sfdr or sustainable finance disclosure regulation so the first wave of that came in in march this year 
So in a way, I guess we've got a bit of a head start in the UK because we haven't been subject to that because of Brexit. Although, um, you know, a lot of the funds we use do sell into Europe. So we've been able to start looking at what they're doing and how they're, they're interpreting, you know, the guidelines and how they're classifying themselves. But as you say, the UK government is going to follow suit with this SDR, so slightly different, sustainability disclosure requirements. And they're expecting to legislate on that in, I think, 2023. So, um, you know, that's coming up soon. The initial focus, what's been driving it so far has been the climate side of things and I think that's just because I guess that you know with COP26 and the environmental urgency that's been a focus and also as there's more metrics been sort of more agreed across the industry I suppose so that's going to be coming in soon and well there's there's currently an FCA um, consultation paper 2117 on that and what that's going to mean is that you know both listed companies asset owners asset managers and you know dfms like parmenia will have more disclosure requirements on climate change so and that's in in terms of you know how they're managing climate risk and their strategy for it and the oversight and the, at their board level as well as product level disclosures on you know scope one two three emissions and also carbon intensity and potentially sort of climate scenarios as well so I think with the you know listed companies going to have to start reporting on this stuff from next year, that will then enable it to flow through the value chain, you know, at the portfolio level, and then you know a fund of fund level like what we do to to get some consistent metrics on on at least carbon footprint, which I think will be a, a great starting point. And this is actually moving on quite quickly, you know, from what we hear from our fund managers and you know different ESG data providers, the the company data is really getting much more broad and detailed, which is good. You're talking there about the end companies producing data on their own activities for the benefit of the fund managers yeah exactly right yes so reporting to their investors on their own emissions across scope one two and three explain scope one two and three oh sure sorry so scope one is the direct emissions that a company has from its operations and scope two is from sort of power and heat that it buys in and then scope three is is the whole value chain. So, you know, it, it's um, any sort of outsourcing it does of its manufacturing as well as its customers. So it's, that's scope three is basically everything else. And today, I think scope one and two has been the easier part to report on and less of scope three. But, you know, the CDP have estimated that scope three is actually 11 times bigger than scope one and two. So, um, you know, I think it, it will be really helpful when we have to, there's mandatory reporting of scope three because that's going to be the most crucial and that's you know that's what investors need to see to, to factor in these properly and their decision making when, when will that come in um, so for listed companies it's coming in next year 2022 and then it will filter through the consultation is for um, bigger asset managers to to report in respect of 2022 during the following year and then for smaller ones it'll be the year after that so that's being driven by the FCA. Yes, yeah, and that's and they've also linked to your point earlier, Tom, on um, their publishing a net zero plan next year, and there's also going to be mandatory transition plans for the industry as well to um, set out how they're going to get to net zero as well, coming as part of that. And you mentioned, I think, I think you mentioned CP twenty one seventeen, which is yeah. the, the new sort of client facing disclosure requirements. When do those come in? When are those going to take effect? So the government consultation ended, I believe, in September. So we're just waiting now to hear back. I think they're due to make an announcement later this year. So hopefully we'll have more clarity on timescales then. Okay, so there's clearly a lot being driven by the FCA. Mm. The DWP have not been silent on all of this either. And Guy Opperman has been pushing through greater engagement across occupational pension schemes. That's right, yeah. We know there's something coming soon from them on the social side of the ESG. So they've already done quite a lot on the E. They're looking more at the S now. 
I'm not sure how much of that will actually cascade down to being relevant to financial advisory firms. I think it's more targeted at the occupational sector. So, so, so perhaps less so for kind of retail financial advisors talking to private investors. I'm not sure about that. But, but you know, the DWP have been pretty active in this space as well, haven't they? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's exactly right. And I think, although, it's, as you say, it's the largest pension schemes which will be hit by this initially, you know, generally where they lead, others will follow. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to see this filter through. And I think you made a really important point as well that, the focus initially seems to be on the E side, you know, the EU taxonomy and the, the new green taxonomy is focusing initially on climate change and they need to flesh out the other E metrics. But yeah, let's not forget about S. I think, you know, there's a risk if we just, you know, if there's just this focus on E and investors are optimising their portfolios for one aspect. That's that's not broad sustainability. So I think um, we welcome more S metrics being brought into the mix as well. Yeah. And again, I know the FCA is now looking more at sort of DNI policies and, and, mm. and pushing that agenda across the, the, the regulated sector as well yeah so that kind of stuff is is, is coming in i know esco goes forward on that as well mm. so but that's clearly on their to-do list as well so you know we're going through this mill race of frantic policy change and the world as a whole is over the last 10 years has has sort of been through this big transition journey in terms of adapting to the need to address climate change head on. And that's now, as you just said, expanded out to sort of more S&G considerations as well. And so there's a huge amount of activity that we've just been talking about. At what point, Molly, will things start to settle down again? And we'll be at the point where we can say, you know, like we kind of, we're on this now. We've got this covered. We've got all the right tools in place. Yeah, I think, to be honest, Tom, we probably need to do this more of a journey than a destination because I I just sense that, you know, this is going to keep developing and progressing. And, you know, let's not underestimate the scale of what the FCA is trying to do here, you know, starting with the climate disclosures, then broadening out to, you know, four other elements of the taxonomy mm. and then all the s elements i expect that's going to be keeping us all busy for the next five years at least but you know who am i to say i don't know i, I just think that we should think this is incremental steps rather than any sort of final perfect place we'll arrive in because i think it's going to be an ongoing thing do you think we'll arrive at a point where there aren't any more ESG funds because ESG is just hardwired into everything? Um, I think, yeah, ESG most broadly, of course, is, you know, some funds are just looking at environmental, social and governance issues from a risk mitigation, you know, just um, which which is obviously a sensible thing that, you know, we'd, we'd hope our fund managers would be doing. So I think that will become the new baseline. But then on top of that, obviously, we're, I think we're still going to have, you know, thematic funds in different areas, whether that's some of the S elements you alluded to, like diversity, or whether it's some of the, you know, the climate change funds we're seeing. But, you know, it, I guess that's the beauty of this area. It's so broad and there's so much variation depending on what, what investors are looking for. Okay. Any final kind of predictions on what we should look out for in terms of what happens next? What do you think is coming down the track? So, say, in, say in 2022, what should financial advisors particularly be looking out for? Well, I think for financial advisors, the FCA new regulations aren't totally clear on what they're expecting from advisors. I know they've made comments about advisors needing to, um, you know, include client sustainability preferences as part of suitability advice. But I think there's probably a bit more help and guidance they can 
can give to the industry on that one. And then from an investment perspective, it's really this stuff we've we've talked about, Tom. So um, yeah, hopefully advisors will be able to get more consistent data starting to come through from their funds and their DFMs on some of these metrics, starting with climate change to help them, you know, have that consistent comparison of different offerings. All right, let's leave it there. Molly, it's been really good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Well, thanks so much, Tom. 